WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week, our guest is the creator of the new graphic novel from uh, TKO Studios, uh, Jalea, writer artist Judy Ba. Welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll start off with our usual icebreaker. Uh, what, are, what are some of the, the first comics that you remember reading? Oh, boy. Um, let's see. The oldest one I have, I think, is uh, a Belgian, Belgian comic called Spiro. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's, I, I don't even know how to, to describe the concept of it. Um, it's about a groom, hotel groom, who becomes a journalist and has adventures all around the world and there's all kinds of wacky things that, that happen. It's, it's kind of the same vibe as Asterix, I guess, in terms of old-timey French-Belgian-style uh, comics. Uh, and then, what else? The Batman the Animated Series comics. Uh, Dragon Ball. I had like one, of, one or two volumes of Dragon Ball that I'm found in random places uh and i used to read i used to to buy um a french magazine called mickey mickey mouse magazine which was a disney disney um, magazine with all kinds of content in it but especially comics uh they had little comic strips of one page or five pages of a volume that was supposed to come out soon stuff like that and uh, yeah, so so I guess it started that way, and then I started branching into more and more things as time went. Uh, so you're here to talk about uh, your new graphic novel from TKO, uh, Julia. Uh, for those unfamiliar, here's the blurb. Uh, inspired by Western African folklore, Julia tells the remarkable tale of Prince Mansour and his royal storyteller Awa as they journey to reach the mysterious wizard Samaro. Uh, who guards a fearsome power that he once used to destroy the world. Um, so can you talk about the origins of the book? Uh, where did the idea for it come from? Um, I almost want to say everyday life. Uh, I guess it's the result of, uh, I, I used an image, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I used the image of just imagining me in my grandparents' living room watching Cartoon Network or, or watching anime and reading comics while the, the rest of the family is talking about politics in, right behind me in the living room. And that, that's kind of how it came to be just, um, I walked into a shop when I was 21 and I had this sort of realization that I had never seen a book like Naruto or Dragon Ball using West African folklore in, in, in fantasy. And I just figured, well, I, I feel like that could make for a fun concept. So I, I spent like the, la- the three years after that working on the aesthetic, the world. And as I was doing that, you know, you, you, read, uh, you read a folktale and you, and you think that character archetype is really fun. Or you read about the history of a particular part of the world and you think that's an interesting thing that happened. I, I'm sure I could make a cool story out of, out of something like this. And, and all of the different things start taking shape and then it's a matter of figuring out how they all fit together. And the, the, the idea of making it about storytelling and that very specific position of a royal storyteller was 
Mostly because when you read all those stories, it always comes back to who was telling them, either historical events or contradiction. It always comes back to that one figure who always comes back in every book you read. So as about the person making the book has always had to travel to some random place where they had to talk to a very old guy who has old stories passed down through generations. And then you start thinking, well, that, that feels like a very, very convenient, very useful and, and very um, interesting heart to have, to, to tie everything together, all the different subjects that you want to talk about. They can all come from that one character who's connected to everything, sort of the historical record of everything, and also has opinions about what those stories mean and what the historical events mean, what kind of lessons you can take from them. So then you sit down and you start thinking, okay, well, how does that person function? How do they think? Um, what kind of weight do they have on their shoulders? How do they interact with the, the king or, or patron that they have? And, and yeah, the, the, the whole thing was very organic, I guess. It came in little bits and pieces. And the story formed over literal years of just gathering information. How did the book find its way to TKO? Um, so I'm based in France, uh, but grew up in Senegal. So when I was working on this, um, I was thinking about where it could possibly fit. Uh, and the, the, the most basic thing is you, you need, you need to eat and pay your bills. Uh, so find, I needed to find a publisher that had strong enough shoulders and, and I guess deep, deep enough pockets that they could sustain me while I was working on the book. And a, a, um, a large enough uh, audience that it could have, uh, it, could, it could spread as far as I wanted it to go. Uh, so I didn't have that option in Senegal. I tried to find that option in France, but uh, ran into the usual issue of people not being used to this and not wanting to get out of their comfort zone in terms of subject matter. And eventually I followed my, my family's advice, which was you're never gonna find a French publisher who can actually do this right. You should go to the US because they, they can see the potential of something like this. Um, and so I contacted, I think it was 2019, I sent a message to TKO essentially saying, hey, I have this thing, would you like to see it? Um, they replied, Sebastian Gurner replied saying, we don't usually take um, uh, submissions, but I've been following your work and I wanna see what you have to offer. And then, um, yeah, so I sent, I sent a pitch that I literally just typed from French to English in one evening. It was full of like mistakes and like, I, I, am, I am quite ashamed of the content of it, but anyway, um, yeah, but they, they, they took it and, and they've been really great to work with on this. That, that, that is definitely not uh, a choice that I, that I regret, quite the opposite. Uh, so, uh, Julia was part of, uh, the, you know, it's part of the new wave of, of TKO books, along with, speaking of Sebastian Gurner, uh, his, two, his two volumes of Scales and Scoundrels, uh, you know, and TKO is branding these as all ages books, 
you know, when you sat down to create Julia, you know, were you saying to yourself, I'm going to write an all ages comic or was that just sort of how it came out? Yeah. Shake for the listeners. He's shaking uh, his head. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, I was literally just making a book with everything in it, narratively, visually, everything in it is just there because it, it's how I, I envisioned it. I didn't do it with an audience in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the in fact I, I even noticed that some people some reviews that i've that i've seen were mentioning the fact that they thought it might be a bit a bit violent for kids which is still something that i find really amusing because the 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 content in it is so tame compared to what i was reading when i was 13 that that yeah it, it's just it's just very amusing because like i i think the worst that i have is one character gets uh gets blown up blown away and ends up laying in a pool of blood. Uh, I think that's the gr- most gruesome thing I have. So every time I see that, that, that comment about the violence, I'm like, I, I was reading Full Metal Alchemist and a 10-year-old loses his arm and his leg. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> trying to relieve his dead mother, who instead comes back as a sort of weird, dismembered zombie with guts falling everywhere. I, I <laughs> yeah, so no, I didn't have an audience in mind. It's, it's it just... I, get, I, I approached TK with it. They said, we're going to market it as a YA book. And I thought, sure, why not? Uh, because because I, I guess it fits. And, and I think in the end, I just made a book with the kind of content that I wanted to see. And it definitely has the energy of me trying to capture the fun of, of the Cartoon Network shows and, and the anime that I was watching when I was a teenager. So... I, I I hope it like conveys that aspect of it, and then as as the, the the person grows older, they can come back to the book and find new things in it. So I think as we've mentioned a couple of times, storytelling is the central conceit and thematic element to Julia. Um, did you have a relative when you were younger who instilled that love in you, you know, telling folk tales or family stories? Uh, yeah, the, um, pretty much everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, they didn't necessarily tell me folk tales, but they, I grew up with a dad who's, who's very into telling you about history and, and to give you an idea, I would go to school. I went to the French system school, uh, which is relevant. The, the, I, I would go to school. I would be told something about history, especially French and African history. And I would come home, tell my dad what I had been told at school. And he would tell me all the stuff that the school conveniently didn't want to tell me about what the French were doing in Africa. Mm. Um, and he was also that type of person who was always very much like, um, if I had a question, he would point to the computer and say, um, go Google it. So I went to, he, he would say Wikipedia. So I went to Wikipedia. I was looking, I, I went looking for the answer. I came back to the table and then he would say, never trust Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 so yeah, plus my, my grandfather has had a very, very interesting and long life. Uh, he went to China. He uh, was a, a militant for his country's independence. He met a bunch of people. Um, and, and there are a lot of different stories told about what kind of people he and my grandmother were. Um, and 
I guess I just grew up re- listening and hearing stories of what other people had done, uh, or stories of the, the long lost past. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm lucky because I have I have a family that's very interested in telling me about the world and giving me books with stories in them. When I when I first decided to make this concept, before I even knew what kind of form it would take, the first thing I did was go to my granddad and ask, "Do you have any books with folk tales in them?" And and he had obviously because because he was him, and I still have the book. It's in an absolute monstrous state now uh, because I read it so much. Uh, but yes, the the literally the book would not exist if I had just been born in a completely different family. I, I do have to say that hearing you say your dad told you to go and check Wikipedia made me personally kind of turn to dust. Oh yeah, no, we're, we're both I that had, gif of Matt D- Damon aging right now. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I just pictured the somewhat out-of-date set of encyclopedia that we had at my house. And it's like, oh boy, I'm old. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, and and what, what was really fun about it was that he also, it wasn't just about gathering information, it was also about being critical of it, hence the Never Trust Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. He was always like, check your sources, uh, make sure that what you're reading or hearing makes sense. Uh, don't trust an information just because it sounds right. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's one of the great lessons I got from it. And I think it's also why the book is the way it is and why the, the, the revelations of the book unfold the way they do. So uh, you mentioned pitching uh, Julia to TKO back in 2019. Um, you know, how long a journey uh, has it been since you, you know, initially conceived the, the concept of the book? Oh boy, uh, six years, something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, because it took that long for like, because when I had the initial idea, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't on a technical level where I could actually do it. I was, I was literally, I had just finished my first year of art school, uh, still trying to sort of shade away the usual, um, the usual amateurish stuff you do when you're a teenager and most of how you, how you draw is based on other people's work. So I was, I was learning how to do anatomy perspective and all that stuff. And then the, the three years after that first initial idea, I was learning illustration, graphic design and how to make stories. I spent one of my uncles gave me the advice when I left the first year that uh, 70% of what you do in school is your own work. You can't expect the school to give you everything you need to, to become someone who can actually work. And so I spent uh, an enormous amount of time uh, in libraries or on the internet just learning how to make stories, looking at how other people did it. I would often, every week I would show up to school with a new comic or a new book or having watched a new movie during the weekend and, and talking to my teachers about it. And so I was learning to, I was learning to be a, a creator as, at the same time as I was making that story. So the first three years were literally just learning how to do it, keeping the idea in the back of my mind of how I want to do it because there's always the challenge of, I was, there was this pressure of, you come from Africa, you should be using that as your, as your, uh, your selling point. And that's something that I didn't want to do. 
because I didn't want to commodify my own existence, I guess. I didn't want to do it just because it's an easy thing to do to make money or, or get attention. Um, and I guess the, the, um, the first three years were a lot of trying to find my mark. And then when I got to the, the fourth year of studies is when I had a, to graduate, you had to do a project. And I chose, uh, I chose to do the very first stories based on a West African folklore and a bunch of other things. Uh, and that's when I started running into my first issues, I guess, the teachers telling me that they don't really understand what's going on, that they don't understand the references in it, that the stories don't really make sense to them, which really made me scared that I was not doing it right and that I was completely failing it. Um, but then the, the graduation day arrived and the jury actually loved it so much that I ended up something like second of my promotion or something. Mm. And, and what I found interesting was that the jury was, um, the younger they were, the more they liked it and the more they understood what was going on. The older they were, however, the more they were like, this is not how you make comics. Uh, they, at one point, some, some of the very old ones showed me one of my pages and said, this is not how you make comics, that layout doesn't make sense, blah, blah. And I was like, I took this from Hellboy. I, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> And he had never read Hellboy. So I, I, guess, I guess that it's one of those, I realized that there was a bit of a generational divide. Um, so then you graduate and you start looking into how to make the thing happen, what kind of stories you want to do. Uh, you test it in other little things here and there and you end up with Delia because you finally found what kind of stories you wanted to tell and how to do it. And uh, obviously, there's a bunch of stuff in it that I wish I had done differently in as much as I'm, I'm progressing. So, of course, you're going to look at a story that you did and, you, and you're going to think, I, should have, I could have handled this better. This could have been streamlined or, or clearer or whatever. But, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied with it. So, yeah, I don't know if I strayed too far from your question. <laughs> We, we always we love when they stray. It's all good. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I loved about the book is the blending of genres. That it's not just this straight folktale. It's got these wild sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, dystopian things going on too. Um, where did the decision to do you know that genre blend come from? Uh, because I don't care about genre, I guess. The phrase out of context is, is kind of aggressive. Um, it's not that I don't care, it's that I love it, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like the division of genre, I guess. Uh, and I think a lot of it is because I grew up on stuff that didn't necessarily care about straight division of genre. Like Samurai Jack is always the example I use of every episode he would end up in a completely different place. And it doesn't matter if one was magic focused and the other one has flying cars. The, the, the level of technology from one region or to another in Samurai Jack makes absolutely no sense. But it works mostly because, and this is the big lesson I got from when working on the Elida and find, finding the, the, the tone, was as long as you play straight and don't, um, you don't need to put attention to the fact that it doesn't make sense because if everyone in the narrative just acts like it does, it is going to make sense. 
And, and especially if every element you have serves a narrative purpose, you can just do whatever you need to do for the story. Uh, so yeah, just mixed in whatever felt right and whatever felt um, satisfying to me and fun, especially. And, and I think the big reason why it had a post-apocalyptic vibe is because I, Samurai Jack is very post-apocalyptic. Uh, Mad Max was a big thing for me when I was a child. I was way too young when I changed the channel and saw a bunch of leather-wrapped people fighting each other in the, the Australian desert. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and, and the concept of the world ending, um, I often make the comment that like, I come from a country where um, it's a third world country. So when something doesn't work, you repair it and you keep it working. So you end up with stuff that often, often looks shoddy looking. The paint has fallen over. It's rusty in several places. It makes weird noises. Uh, all kinds of things. Like we, we were in a cab one day and the floor of the cab was missing. You would see the line, the white lines of the road between our legs. Like that, that's that, that kind of aesthetic. And th so when I started working on, on this universe, I, I approached it kind of like that because Mad Max has the same thing of everything is rusty and run down. I wanted to have the same feel except West African closer to my, my upbringing. And I was really happy because I have um, a collaborator from Nigeria who told me that he, he really liked the aesthetic I was using because it felt like the one he grew up with. And I, I, I well, at least a fantasy version of the one he grew up with. And I thought, yeah, okay, I have managed to find the, the right the right aesthetic I wanted. Um, curious because I saw this on, on I, now I don't remember whether it was Twitter or Instagram, but one of those, um, you know, did you end up having to, to tell people or, or defend this idea that Julia isn't uh, Afrofuturist? Oh yeah. Um, the main reason for this is that when I was started working on it, I didn't even know what Afrofuturism was. Uh, afterwards, I started doing my research and finding all the different books and all of that. But uh, at the time when I started, and, and I didn't know, and and it's more so a matter of my, my dad. My dad would say language is precise, um, and essentially, don't start using words that don't apply to a thing just because it vaguely resembles something else. Um, Afrofuturism is a very specific thing created by very specific people in America. Mm -hmm. I don't see how it fits with my, um, my, my background and experience from Africa because the whole deal of Afrofuturism is dealing with African-American issues, uh, sort of a reclaim, reclaiming of identity and history. And I was not coming from that perspective at all. And I don't want, on, on, one, on one hand, it's because I don't want to be claiming something that isn't mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the other is because I worry about this tendency we have of flattening things and blending them together into an easily marketable uh, uh, mesh where you sort of erase or flatten the identities of different people. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when you do that, you essentially flatten their entire existence and the challenges that they have and the subjects that they want to talk about. So yeah, it's essentially a plea to to not flatten things, to give to each side where what their due is, and and to acknowledge the fact that there is 
a lot of diversity of subjects and, and styles in the, in the productions of different black people around the world. The aside in the middle of the book, uh, it, there's this almost Twilight Zone EC Comics short in the middle as the people of this village react to the tower that's sort of central to the story appearing. Yes. And it's just, it's one of my favorite bits in the book. Ah, good. Why did you decide to break from the main action of the, the story of uh, Mansour Nawa and instead do this sort of little almost self-contained bit there. Yeah. Um, okay, so I love The Twilight Zone. And it is, it is a riff on a very specific, my favorite episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, <laughs> is it, I, I bet I know what one, because it's the one that I immediately <laughs> thought of. <laughs> yeah, The Monsters That Do on Maple Street. Yes, indeed. It's, it's, it's my favorite one. I, I, I discovered The Twilight Zone when I was in my very early 20s. Uh, it's one of those things that you always hear about when you're a kid, but you never actually get access to it until one day you're older and you're like, hey. And, and yeah, so I watched, I think I watched all of it. There's a lot of episodes. Um, but the, the, that episode specifically left me with a very loud, very big impact. And when I was working on this book, the entire point is talking about the effects of uh, the ruling class on, on the people and how corruption and manipulation of the truth can lead to very unsavory results. And as I was working on it, I realized that I had fallen into the very trap that I was making this book to criticize, which was to always focus on the royals and the leaders. And, and essentially, if you're making a book about how being the normal people is actually very cool and they deserve just as much attention and memory in history, you, you kind of need to have like at least one story that focuses on them. And I also found it very interesting to have this opportunity to sort of show what it, like how horrible a situation like this could be in, could be like. Uh, because what I found funny is that the entire point of this story is that the, the magical tower appears. People are, have been fed with all kinds of superstition and everything. And it snowballs from that into uh, arguments about random suspicions that they have about each other and grudges that they held. And it's all based on stuff that I've actually seen. Everything in it is based on, 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 on personal experience. It's people that I have learned about or personally knew or experiences that I've had. Like the, the, the one where the character says he's listening to, to, to metal and he, the rest of the, the people just don't know what it's like. And he, he calls it, um, he, says, he says he's listening to Black Sabbath, Sabbath and, and they all get scared because they think it's witchery. Like I've had, I've had something of that level where I had to explain to my dad that the, the, the demon uh, poster that I had in my room was not going to call forth an actual demon. And we're talking about a person who is like, like very knowledgeable and everything. So I have never understood why or how it's possible that, that such reaction can exist in someone who is so learned and, and so knowledgeable about all kinds of things. Um, and I found that, 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 that um, paradox very interesting. So I figured, make a story where you get to put people in front of their, in front of their contradictions and 
the the episode of of Twilight Zone was a very good sample to use. Uh, so one day I was on a train trip and I just pulled up my computer and I was the weird guy in his seat just watching the episode over and over again and taking notes and and stopping and going back and stopping and going back and taking more notes just to look at the structure of the episode and how it was made and what kind of events happened when and everything. And and it was a really good learning experience too in terms of how to tell a story because I mean Rod Serling and his team were badasses. Uh, so yeah, the the, um, the thing was an attempt at humanizing the book uh, and pull from one of the best uh, examples of storytelling I, I know of. Uh, a funny thing about Black Sabbath, just a you know tangent quickly. Was, this was kind of report. I read this like years ago, but it was pointed out to me like just last week or, or the week before by a friend of the show, Corey McCreary, there's this whole essay uh, about how Black Sabbath, you know, obviously, uh, you know, conjuring, uh, you know, fears of, of uh, you know, kind of early satanic panic and in, in, in people yeah. that weren't really familiar with the lyrics, but, you know, they were actually an incredibly Catholic band. If you really like sit there, <laughs> and think about it and break down the, the lyrics, it's more of that sort of God fearing uh, Catholic guilt, uh, type thing <laughs> noise see that's something that i find interesting too because like one one uh fear i had when i was working on on this particular story was there is the stereotype of african people v- being very ignorant and superstitious and i had this dilemma of i have these are things that i have seen but they're a cliche because that people think that's all we do uh and I was afraid of playing into the cliche, but the thing that sort of convinced me to actually do it anyway was that I have other things in the book that show that there are other things about these people than just superstition. And um, the rest of the world behaves the same way. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the fear of, of, like, the first example I have in mind is when I was a kid and I was into Pokemon and I was reading about parents being scared that Pokemon was some kind of gateway to Satanism. Mm-hmm. I, I, and that was in, that was in the West, that was in the US and, and Europe. And, and that was just insane to me. So yeah, the, it was very amusing, I guess, working on this and realizing over time, especially last year, that there is a lot of relatability around the world with, with this story that I, I, I was hoping for, but I didn't expect that it would be that close i guess because last year i've seen behaviors of people who are so close to some of the stuff in my book that i was booked yeah, yeah I, the number of times you know when i was younger i was like oh you can't play dungeons and dragons it'll you, yeah and i was like i now played i played dungeons and dragons every week for a decade now and i'm nowhere <laughs> near i mean i did in high school and college too you know on sub rosa but it's like i'm not you know getting ready to worship satan <laughs> I don't think it is. Um, uh, also, from that little interlude, um, there any chance for more stories or a spinoff with the hippo and the rabbit? Because I, I would that read that book. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that question was coming. Um, <laughs> They're just great. I, I I I want to, to be honest. I haven't had I haven't found a story yet. I think I would just need to pull back my books again and read a few stories and I'm sure I would find things to fit together into a cohesive thing. Uh, I have like, I have a pitch made for a sequel to the book already uh, with more, more different stories. Uh, but 
right now the the hippo and the, and the rabbit are more of an effective project i don't have an actual narrative or anything but the second i do i'm going to do something with it because i i like drawing them and they have a dynamic that i find really interesting and i don't i don't have the time to delve too much into it in the book for all the obvious reasons so yeah the, the i feel like there would be there would be a very fun um cartoon cartoon character type of archetype to use short short fun stories of them doing stuff around the world music is central <laughs> to the story uh, yes. and it's something i always find interesting when creators work on incorporating music into comics as the oral A-U-R-A-L for our listeners, not O-R, um, uh, is one of the storytelling aspects that comics aren't immediately heir to. Um, how did you sit back and think about visualizing music for comics? Uh, I think I went rather, rather lazy. Um, does it start with music notes most of the time? Um, but um, essentially, the thing is, when working on this, I tried, especially at the beginning, to be as simple as I could with everything because it's a lot to take in. The book has a lot of concepts, names. Uh, you have to get familiarized with the world, with code, codes, and an aesthetic that you don't necessarily have in other places. So. I try to streamline things and make them as easily to understand as possible. So music notes, very easily to, very easy to understand. You know what you're looking at. Uh, it's also very convenient because you can draw the music notes in different ways, depending on the mood of the scene. You can give them different colors, different texture. Um, where I wanted to have more fun was towards the end, especially as you come to understand that there is a magical aspect to that music as well. And the color that I always use for magic throughout the book is green. So I, I try to keep green present every time there's magic. And so there's, I think it's in chapter two, where you have Awa who starts singing for Monso in the middle of the fight, trying to keep, to give him uh, support. And I, I, I put green in that one panel, just as a sort of setup for later because she ends up using music when he uses his magic powers as well. Uh, so yeah, the, the, um, he, he was more of a trying to figure out the color, color coding of the music as you evolve throughout the book. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I wish if I had found a way to make it so you are supposed to listen to a soundtrack as you read the book, I would have done it. it it's, it's impractical for, for all kinds of reasons because you can never tell how fast or, or slow someone is going to be at reading different parts and everything. Uh, but yeah, the, the, like I, I always say that if there was an adaptation of this, I would be very annoying about the music in it. <laughs> you, got, you got to get that Spotify playlist together just to beat them to the punch. <laughs> Well, I technically have made the, uh, a Spotify playlist that I was listening to when I was working. Okay. Uh, it's a mishmash of uh, various musics from different parts of Africa, as well as the US and uh, bits, bits of the UK. Uh, it's essentially just me putting myself in the mood. 
I don't know if it would be very good for people to listen to it while reading because you would end up with a very upbeat song in the middle of reading a very sad moment. Mm-hmm. But but the it would be a good template, I guess, for for someone who would have to make an actual soundtrack for the for 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 a thing like this. The 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 licensing would be very expensive, though. I had a whole question about that soundtrack later. So what, what kind of soundtrack you would have. So repeat that. I assume there was a bunch of Salif Kaita on there. Uh, yeah, there is a few. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, Burner Boy, um, some rap music from, from Senegal, especially older stuff. Um, I have some what are they called again the tribe called west uh a bunch of buster rhymes in there as well like there, there's 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 a really big mix of there's a guy who called Tumani diabate who's from mali who's a who's an actual jelly uh and his his music is actually the kind of music that i would want to have a lot in the in, 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 in adaptation of this mm-hmm. uh so yeah there's a there's a bunch of different things Kind of like the book. <laughs> um, so another thing that's kind of consistent, you know, there, there are these symbols peppered throughout the story, uh, including one that's introduced early on that, you know, you have to put a little asterisk there. It's like, no, this isn't what you think this is. Uh, <laughs> and, and another uh, that toward the end, you instruct the reader, you know, go back and try and find it, uh, you know, yeah. once you've explained what it is. Uh, and it, it's cool because it basically dares the reader to reread the book uh, to find them all. Uh, you know, almost as, as as they're almost done with the uh, the first read. You know, was it a challenge to keep track of of all the little symbols throughout to make sure that you were dropping in those those sort of like in story Easter eggs? Um, I want to say no because the idea, for example, the idea of having the, the line towards the end of the book that says "Go back and and find it." Mm-hmm. It was a spur of the moment thing. I was literally just making the page, and I thought, "Hey, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be funny if I was like, you know." Just telling the reader to actually, to, to actually be proactive, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, like your dad so telling yeah, you to Google it. <laughs> kind of. So like, so I went back afterwards, and if I'm, it was more a challenge of figuring out where to put the symbol now, because it, the, because since I, I didn't think of doing it before, I had to figure out where it could fit, where it would be easy enough to find, but hard enough that you would not see it too obviously the first time you read. Um, and, and the rest of the symbols was more, um, it was a result of me just being curious about what kind of languages exist in Africa. And I found references of a bunch of different ones. I figured this is one that is easy enough to use, which is the reason why it tends to be used by a lot of African creators and wasn't Black Panther actually. Um, and... I got a book that cost me like a hundred bucks <laughs> of just written African languages um, explaining the origin of every one of them, how they're used, the, the cultural context of it, because that's also important to really understand how to use the different things. Um, and yeah, after, afterwards it was, it was more a matter of trying to figure out where to put them. I didn't want it to be too distracting they have to feel like they're just a, random, a normal part of the world, not something that you're supposed to be like, hey, look at this. Um, yeah, so 
it was a challenge in that regard, I guess, figuring out where to put it and doing it in a way that feels cohesive and organic with the world and not like I'm trying to to give it, uh, I don't know, to show off something or pull your attention away from, from the narrative. So we've touched on this a little already, but your bio also points out your influence and love of those 2000s cartoon network shows yes i I definitely see the the samurai jack the tartakovsky in in there Uh, but what are some of your other favorites from that era oh boy um the powerpuff girls Mm -hmm. is a big one for me uh dexter's lab um the teen titans uh the star wars tv show that tartakovsky made uh what else was there? Um, the KND, Kids Next Door. I was a very, very big fan of The Kids Next Door. When it ended, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? I mean, the list, the list is really long. That's, that's why it's complicated, because like, there, there was a lot, and I mean a lot of stuff on there. Uh, Juniper Lee. That one came in when it's basically been forgotten by now. Um, ah. Yeah, the, the Cartoon Network had so many different cartoons that just felt like they felt like they had a strong voice, each and every one of them at the time, and and I'm 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 very impressed with the level of artistry and and I guess the thing for me was that I was watching them with my dad or my grandparents making complaints about how it's ugly and stupid and doesn't make any sense and i knew that it was kind of useless to try and explain that no but there is actually a logic to this when the rabbit pulls a a hammer out of nowhere and hits the guy it 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 looks silly and that's the point but there is an actual logic about this and 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 it's fun and or explaining that the, the superheroes in tights are actually having a very difficult situation right now and if you look past the silly stuff you can actually get some great human uh, uh, message out of it and like my, my childhood is basically me trying to participate in adult discussions trying to pull from the media I love to, to pull examples of philosophies out of it being shut down because I make the mistake of mentioning that it's coming from an episode of Dexter's lab and then learning how to do it and then eventually you in you are at the table at like 16 and you're presenting an example of a story that talks about what the discussion is about at that moment. And your grandmother goes, that's very interesting. That's a very good way to look at this. And I, was like, and I just respond, thanks, that's from Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, that's, that's the kind of, of uh, relationship I have to, to Cartoon Network. It's a lot of creativity and a lot of, um, a lot of freedom and the family that taught me to look at it and be critical of it and also sort of pull back away from it as well and not forget that reality exists outside of it because when you're a child especially like i was i was one of these kids who was so into pokemon that adults were scared <laughs> so like i get it oh man um yeah, you know, there, 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 there's something to be said about sort of questioning the logic of, of then modern cartoons as if, you know, 
1950s uh, Looney Tunes cartoons where, you know, yeah. a coyote orders rocket-powered roller skates <laughs> mail is, is the most logical thing in the world. <laughs> and, and, let's not for, and let's not forget Bugs, who's a trickster. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, un, he's Coyote or Loki or Anansi, only he's a modern yeah. cartoon rabbit. Yeah, that, see, okay, this is one aspect that I found really fun, is that um, I came to understand the evolution of those different archetypes over time, and growing up, especially in g g getting into the older, the African um, influences for the book, I came to realize um, parallels between characters that I did not necessarily see when I was a kid. So the, the, the hair archetype that we have in West Africa is basically Bugs Bunny in many ways, except not as zany. Um, and I mean, when I was a kid, I did not realize this. It's, you know, growing older, you start to, to notice the, the, the relationship they have together. And, and what, what, what was fun for me was making stories out of my background mixed with the visual and narrative um, influences from Cartoon Network and, and other stuff, making a story out of it, showing it to my grandmother and realizing that now that it has the aesthetic of something she knows, she gets it. And, and that doesn't mean that she's going to read my books because it's still too violent and weird for her. But at least now when she reads my stories, she sees the hyena and she knows what the character is, who he is, what he represents. She gets it now. And I find it really like awesome. It's one of the unforeseen effects, I guess. Nice. Um, you know, get, given animation is is you know such a such a clear influence in you know your work. You know, is that something that you you're looking to get involved in career wise? Um, I always thought I was too lazy to do animation. I don't have the patience to actually animate something. <laughs> um, but there are the jobs of animation in animation, like designing stuff. Uh, I have done some design stuff for uh, a project here and there. Uh, I've been approached to to at least show my stuff to see if, if studios are interested and stuff like that. So we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, the, the I really, I, f I feel like that would be a very interesting thing to do. And I want to, I want to, I want to have that feeling of designing something, seeing it evolve through production and then end up on a screen moving. I want to have that satisfaction. And uh, I guess the, the, the thing then becomes more a matter of figuring out where you want to work. Because I don't know, if I had to compare, I guess, uh, the concept art between the, the difference between the concept art of a Disney movie and a Disney film is so different mm -hmm. that I, I always end up disappointed. I always, want, I always wanted the concept art to be on the screen rather than what actually ended up on a Disney movie screen, at least for the, the recent ones. Um, whereas, if I had to use another recent example, the concept art of Spider-Verse is basically what you end up with on screen. So if I had to be picky and choose what kind of projects that I want to work on in animation, I would want to work on ones like Spider-Verse, where there is a, a more streamlined relationship between the concept art and the actual end product, because because I don't want I don't want to design something and see it evolve to a point where I feel like it is losing something. Yes, but that's me being picky and, and annoying. <laughs>
No, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at some of the concept art for Steven Universe, it was Guy Davis creating these monsters. And it's like, somebody's like, wow, that really does look like a Guy Davis hideous creature from the marquee. But uh, one of the Disney movies from the late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, that's somewhat less known, uh, Atlantis, the Lost Empire. Yeah. The, the design, the, the concept art there was Mignola. Yeah, and I know, I know. <laughs> it doesn't look like Mignola. I mean, it still looks pretty, but it's like, but, but th that should look like Hellboy. Where's the blockiness yeah. in the shadows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's basically all they kept. And the fingers. They kept, they kept the fingers. Like <laughs> yes. the, the, the Disney-fied Mignola style. And the, the, the Atlantis movie is one of my favorite Disney movies. And I realized, like, I, I watched it when I was a kid. Loved it even though it's full of narrative issues bogged down and everything. But anyway, um, so I loved it, mostly because of the world and the design of everything. And so you grow up loving that movie more for its aesthetic than, and, and the world building than the actual narrative. And then years later, when you're like 16, 17, you bump into this red guy on the screen one day and you're like, oh, that looks cool. I need to get that book. And, it starts, and then one day you notice that the two things are actually related and is the same guy <laughs> and and yeah disney they disneyfied mignola style i would say they kept enough of it that that it still had an impression on me when i was a kid but i can't help but wonder but yeah what, what would it look like if it hadn't softened it so much favorite weird little known fact a never produced uh, animated series spinoff of Atlantis was going to feature a crossover with Gargoyles, which would have Oh my been, god. Yeah, Demona wow. was going to pop up. They weren't oh going to call god. it Demona. They weren't going to make it, like, clear, but if you knew both properties, it would be like, holy crap, that's Demona in an episode of Atlantis. Jesus Christ. No, see, okay, that annoys me. Like, <laughs> oh. Don't believe me, I'm right there with you. Uh, uh, what might have see, been... I'm really sad that the show wasn't being made because I saw it and well I saw the, the first like two or three episodes that they made and I was sad that they didn't even they didn't make more of it but now oh my god yeah yeah I read that and I was like but, but come on it was crossover with, that would have been come on <laughs> had gargoyles ended by that point Matt yeah, yeah gargoyles would have ended in ninety. 98 i think 98 yeah. was the the saturday morning abc season that most people just sort of like <laughs> yeah uh greg wiseman had left and this is just sort of it's the the it, the gas leak here okay. uh, of community <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> that, that, the last like, gasp of the disney afternoon <laughs> yeah yeah the, the, it was not good um those were the times yeah yeah um so i i read the the book initially you know in a review a digital review copy and uh -huh. i literally just thought i think i heard the package that has my hard copy delivered because i just heard the door and the <laughs> thump of a package being dropped by the postman um so i'm looking forward to going back and looking for those symbols and things on a second reading in a physical copy uh, -huh. uh i am a 40 year old i am an old fogey who sticks by his you know physical copies of things which has led to 
the fact that I need to have my garage finished so I can move all of my books and comics oh, yeah. there because they take up a lot of space. Um, yep. Are you a digital or f- physical reader? And when you're doing design, do you even think about the difference between digital and physical or do you just make the comic and it will work as it uh, I am both. Mostly because I spent most of my teenage years reading manga because that's what was most easily accessible to me uh, because it was on the internet. It, it's, it's, this, uh, it's this point of uh, uh, tension I have with in the whole uh, discussion about uh, piracy stuff where I'm like, without that, without fans scanning manga, I would not be here. Uh, and, and it is one of those complex things of like, that's not to say that piracy is right or anything, just I have to be cognizant of the fact that without it, I would not exist. <laughs> or I would not be making this, this, this work. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I spent my teenagers reading comics on a screen and then buying the volume on paper when I went to Europe and it was in shops. Um, so when I work, I tend to, when I started working uh, right after graduation, I was making them for digital only um, because there were short things that I just posted on the internet to see what kind of reaction I would get. And that's how Sebastian Gunner found me. Um, so he was never meant to be printed. I spent the first years of my career receiving messages from all kinds of people asking me when are you going to finally print those things because I want to have them on paper. Uh, there were a few printed editions with the, the group Kogali from Nigeria, um, but it was always more of a of a, a thing for them to to build their 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 catalog and brand. I, I didn't have much of a of an involvement in that. So now. I do have to think about printing way more because, because I'm working on books that are actually going to be printed. I have a creator-owned series in the works right now. Uh, I, I work on several covers for different publishers. So I have to think about printing way more, which is, um, it's nice to have a guideline, I guess, but I, I do miss the possibility to just do whatever you want and put it on the screen and don't not have to worry too much about format. So I think when I have the time, I'm probably going to try and figure out something that I can put on my website that people can read directly on the screen where I can have more freedom than I would have with a paper format where you have to stick to the, to the, the everlasting rectangle. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, I, I, I haven't I hadn't think, thought about it in a while. I think I'm going to get back to that as soon as I can. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I read uh, an interview that you had done uh, with uh, Comic Book Couples Counseling, and a big chunk of it was like, you know, describing how good the book feels physically yeah. in your hands. And you don't get, you know, you don't get that a lot with like typical floppies because they're, they're probably as, tri- you know, cheaply produced as possible to, to, to make a profit. But, you know, with the TKO books, obviously, there's definitely, you know, you can tell there's more attention uh yeah. paid and then with this current line you know doing the digest size uh and, and everything so um you know well, yeah. I, I wasn't sure how you kind of felt like holding that uh <laughs> your, your your product in your hands like that <laughs> um it's really weird 
mostly because it's the first proper book I've made, I guess. Uh, as in, I I wrote and drew and and did everything, and and it was printed by people who have a very good understanding of how to do it. Uh, to the point where I at one point I received an email that was like, "Can you change the color, the, the color? Uh, I don't even know what it's called. Ah, um, the the the. Can you change the color code of the specific black that you used?" And I was like, "Well, what?" <laughs> <laughs> like those are those are considerations that I knew about but now had never had to actually do. Mm-hmm. And and that just showed me like the level of these are like actual professionals thinking about how this is gonna look when it's printed. And and yeah, it worked out really well. I it's also really funny because you look at the pages that, that you were agonizing over, thinking, Oh my god, I forgot to fill that specific spot. Or, or I, I, I went over the line when I was coloring and once it's printed, you don't even see it. So it, it, it's really nice to have a sort of a reminder that I don't need to be agonizing as much as I was on my pages. It's, it's fine if I make a mistake here and there. It's not going to be the end of the world. Uh, so uh, Julia isn't the only thing you have going on. Uh, you're going to be contributing art to the upcoming uh, Joker Presents Puzzle Box miniseries. Uh, from DC, uh, was curious, you know, if you had a favorite uh, Joker story or, or, you know, iteration of the Joker, besides, obviously, you know, what you'll be drawing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing something like 10 pages on one of the issues, and it's Mandat and Killer Moth. Ooh. I always confuse him with Mothman for some reason. So Mandat <laughs> and Killer Moth fighting each other in a volcano. Um, but the, the, the big one I have coming is uh, July as well. I have an issue of Truth and Justice where I'm drawing, I'm drawing Damien Wayne celebrating his birthday and getting kidnapped by gods. Uh, in, in, yeah, it, and, and the, it's Andrew Aiden, I think that's how you say his name, I'm not sure, um, who's writing the story. And, and I mean, it, it happened basically because DC, DC came to me about something completely different. And um, I told him, no, thank you, but can I draw Robin? Because I have this speech of a Robin story I really want to do. Uh, it's, anyway, uh, <laughs> so obviously they told me, basically they told me you're a baby, you just arrived. We can't give you an actual graphic novel to do. But <laughs> how would you like, how, how, <laughs> they didn't say it like that, obviously, but like that was basically the, the response. Um, and I mean, it's true. Like, I, you can't exactly show up at DC and be like, give me a book. But that's insane. <laughs> I'll take the Batman, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, at least I tried. But yeah, um, but yeah so the, they, the, the stars uh, were aligned and they just happened to have a, a, a specific issue of truth and justice was just the Robin I wanted to work on. And, and they gave me that to do. And I really like how it came out. Like very wholesome, fun stories of, of superheroes doing hairy uh, things. Um, so yeah, uh, now as to your question, my favorite Joker is the, the Batman TAS one. Mo- mostly because I was terrified of him when I was a kid. Is this weird fascination you have of like, watching it now, uh, I realized the level of horror of the character where I was a kid, I didn't necessarily fully understand it, but I was terrified by him. And I loved the, Obviously, I watched it in French when I was a kid, so I didn't have Mark mm-hmm. Hamill's voice, but I had a good enough French imitation of it. Uh, so the difference, th- there isn't really much of a difference in terms of tone and, and voice uh, style. Um, but watching it now in English these days, 
gives me a whole new level of appreciation for, for the voice work. And the writing being the same, regardless of language, the writing of the character was amazing. Like he was terrifying while still being kind of funny in a twisted way that is quite messed up. Like you laugh, but you don't want, like you feel guilty for laughing at his joke because he, the dude is literally killing people. <laughs> and, and like, I, I have a sister who's 11 now. And when she was around five or six, uh, she had seen episodes of Superman and Batman TAS that I showed her. Mm-hmm. But I always carefully chose them because she was a bit of a scaredy cat. And then one night she was watching TV without me. She saw Batman Beyond come on and she decided to watch it. She had never seen Batman Beyond before. And it was the Joker, Return of the Joker movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Your face says everything. I walked <laughs> in on her seeing the scene where Joker is literally electrifying a, a 10-year-old kid on, on an operating table, like proper torture in a very graphic way for a cartoon for kids. And I just thought, wow, I had completely forgotten about this. <laughs> like that, the character is terrifying. I fucking love him. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely, you know, and, and maybe this is because it's a product of, of the other sort of Warner Brothers animation shows that were coming around the same time. But he definitely was sort of like the dark mirror version of like uh, an, an animaniac, uh, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he works really well in ways that I find quite, like one of the great achievements of this show for me all those shows really of the all that DC AU, I think it's called. Uh, the great achievement for me was how interesting the characters were and how human they were. And especially revisiting things now as an adult, you get a deeper appreciation for certain things and you realize that you were watching shows with, you were watching episodes with stories that you, you, you're not going to fully get until you're an adult yourself. And I think that's pretty awesome. Like, I, I feel like that's a very impressive thing to do, especially considering that they were doing it for a very big studio and, and there were, I'm sure, a lot of censorship and, and having to convince people to let them do certain very complicated and, and complex uh, themes. Like, I'm impressed. Like, my hat's off to the entire team because, my God. I mean, you think about something like what is one of my top three episodes, Joker's Favor. That's the story of just this guy. I mean, you, they're, they're taking an entire episode of this cartoon that's supposed to be about Batman. Batman yeah. is in five minutes of that 22. Yeah. Joker's in a lot, but it's really second to poor Charlie Collins, who the Joker is just screwing with. And it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I love the creativity they had. I, I think I could, I could cite them as a big inspiration, like a big role model in... in how to tell stories and what kind of stories you can do. Because they, 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 they had a format to follow, but they never really stuck to it too much. And, and they approached the characters with a level of adult uh, understanding while still being very accessible to kids. Like when I say that I want my book to be the kind of book that if, if, a, if a teen or a kid is reading it, I want them to come back later and see new things. This is definitely the type of vibe that I want. Like I want, I want them to have a similar experience as with Batman TAS, of like reading or watching it again as an adult and being like, oh damn, there was there was things in it that I didn't understand or empathize with when I was a kid and didn't understand that experience yet. Um, 
we got we got a couple of Twitter questions in. We're gonna go with this one, uh, got because you know we we gotta respect uh, the loyalist content consumer uh, Asimov fangirl. Uh, she asks, uh, what would what would your main characters uh, in Julia? What would Monsur and Awa do if they got to take a vacation or had a day off? Oh boy. Um, I would say Awa doesn't take days off. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, mostly because of how, how I almost want to say obsessed she is. Um, so both characters are very much based on me. So I would say that she would spend her day off learning how to do her job better. Mm-hmm. Um, like like seeing seeing a performer or reading stories or, or trying to convince people of, of something I don't know, um, like learning how to do it better. And Mansoor rather is much more laid back, so I would say he would find a quiet place to be to be to be chill. Like he he's very much more based on on the side of me that is way more introverted and and. Um, less sure of himself, so he would probably find a place where he can be alone and recharge. I guess. But it's kind of weird how I didn't I didn't ask myself questions like this when I was making them. <laughs> like, what what would he do on a day off? It's, you know, it's one of those things, right? Like, like maybe it makes us like a story Bible, but it never gets used. It's just sort of like <laughs> a weird fact yeah. that you know, but <laughs> it's like I have, I have various little things. There are plenty of aspects of their lives that are that are not in the book, and it's one of the things that I want to have in the sequel. Uh, if I ever get to make it, uh, I have pieces of their of their life and and people that they know and stuff like that that I couldn't put in the book because you have to get rid of a lot of stuff. But yeah, the, the there is more. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, what are you reading right now? Um, well, good question. Um, I pulled back a... Wait, what is it? I have this entire... I have this massive folktale book from from uh, France and I think England. It's a mix of different things. Uh, see, this is an example of, of, of what I say about Awa and her days off. I, <laughs> I, I spend my days off reading books that serve as research for the stuff I'm working on. Mm-hmm. So it is enjoyable. I'm having a lot of fun, but, but it also serves as, a, as work as well. Uh, so there's that. Now, in terms of comics, uh, I really like Ultra Mega. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, 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 am, I am quite blown away by the, not just the visuals, because by now you're used to how he draws. You know, you know how James Heron is at, at drawing things, monsters especially. Mm-hmm. But um, I am also impressed by the fun in the story and, and how cool the concept is. So I really, I really, really enjoy that that aspect of it, and yeah, I need to get back into reading comics because I am the embodiment of the paradox of 
I make comics, which means I don't have the time to read them, mm-hmm. which is the most annoying paradox in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I have I have a bunch of stuff to do. Uh, I I I think I I sort of gravitate more towards new stuff. Like I I'm reading a book about J C Leyendecker. I got an art book of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm trying to sort of gravitate away from comics because I'm afraid of. Um, I'm a sponge, and if I only consume one type of media, that's the only thing I, I'm able to uh, uh, to create as well. So I have to diversify my my uh, my consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, my well, God! <laughs> <laughs> but I just imagine showing up at a convention and being the only guy who hasn't actually read any comics. It's it's like that dream of of waking up the day of a test that you didn't study for. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Way like, too often. <laughs> But the thing is, you end up in front of the person who made the, t- the test and you have to explain that you didn't read it, not because you don't care or anything, just because you'd rather be reading something else because you're afraid of cheating on them. If that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Judy, this has been a fantastic hour. Uh, final question. How can people follow you online and keep up with uh, Julia and, and the DC stuff you got coming out and everything else? Uh, I think the, the easiest one is the, the uh, Instagram and and, uh, and Twitter. Uh, so Juni Bar is my name on both. Um, yeah, th- those are those are the easiest ways, especially because like I have in June, yeah? book comes out in July. Yeah, so there's still a, a way to go. So you can you can see me post about what I'm doing the different things I have coming. Uh, I finished the Batman cover yesterday, uh, which, you know, the frustration of not being able to post the thing the second you finished it because you have to give it to the publisher first. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be posting a bunch of stuff until uh, I get to actually announce my next mini series. And yeah. All right. Well, Judy, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. That was fun. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at comicsxf.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. A $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. A $3 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, that one time Pete Wisdom stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. WMQA.